0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship located in Mountain View, California. Today it is, what does the Bible have to say about capital punishment, Uh, gleaning through the scriptures. I came up with six main points I want to share with you. And again, these are just major guidelines. These are forming the boundaries in which we should think as Christians. This is not going to be an exhaustive study. This is just setting up watermarks or main boundaries for what God has set on this issue regarding capital punishment. So these are six points that I want to share with you. We'll look to a few scriptures. Follow along with me as we go. It will be more helpful for you if you've got a Bible handy. And let's go ahead and look to God's Word together regarding this issue of capital punishment. And we begin, uh, point number one that I want to make is just a definition of what is capital punishment. Very important when you're discussing these issues, if you've got to agree on a definition and the definition has to be a correct definition. Otherwise, you can't really have a legitimate discussion or debate. So here's a simple yet legitimate definition. That's point number one of what is capital punishment. The definition is, and these words are very precise and very important, legally putting someone to death, legally warranted by... The government was established by God. So legally putting someone to death for a specified sin or crime. That's capital punishment. Legally putting someone to death for a specified sin or crime. From a theological, biblical, Christian point of view, we use the word sin. Yet in the secular world, many times they don't like to use the word sin. They're afraid of the three-letter word called sin, so they'll use other words and substitute it. One of them might be crime. We do have capital punishment here in America. It was banned for a while during the 70s, but it's been reinvoked, and so there is capital punishment, and it is not for sin, it is for crime, they would tell us. So legally, putting someone to death for a specified sin or crime. And so there is a debate on this issue of whether capital punishment is good or bad, whether it should be allowed by the government or not, whether we should enforce it. Uh, This debate is not just between non believers and Christians. This debate actually also goes on between Christians and Christians. Uh, But the final authority is God's Word. So that's what our goal is to see what Scripture has to say about it. So I'm going to go on with the next five biblical points to help guide our thinking. Uh, Point number two after the definition is that God instituted and defined capital punishment. This is just clear in Scripture. God is the one, He created capital punishment. He instituted, he defined it, we're going to see that all over scripture, but if you have your Bible handy, he did it from the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 2, this is creation. sixth day of creation, God created two people, Adam and Eve, created Adam, the first man, he was a real human being, very clearly from scripture. God gave him commands, God also gave him warnings for his good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 17, after God had created Adam, He gave him some orders and commandments and boundaries. And verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, or Adam, or Adam, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. So there's some freedom and liberty there, but here's the warning in verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Okay? So God put down a prohibition. said, Here, you can do this, but you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this, said God. That's a command from God. And any time someone violates a command given by God, that's called a sin. In this case, it's also a sin and a crime. God is the judge. So this is really a legal issue as well, not just a religious issue. So this is what he said in verse 17. He told Adam from the beginning, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Do not do this. There will be a consequence if you do, and here is the consequence God gave Adam. For on the day that you eat from this forbidden tree, you shall surely die. There it is. That is the death penalty. It's in keeping with our definition. Legally putting someone to death for a specified sin or crime. So, God was the one who initially instituted the death penalty. Unfortunately, in His weakness and Adam caved, he sinned, he disobeyed, and that's where we read in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve both sinned against God, they violated this command, and as a result, uh, God issued the consequence of capital punishment, death. Some would say, no, Adam didn't die. Well, yeah, he did. He ate, he disobeyed. By the way, the word death in the Bible means separation, and it manifests itself in three different ways. Death in the Bible means separation from God. Physical separation, the soul from the body. Spiritual separation, fellowship from God. And then there's eternal separation in eternal hell. That's what death means. And it has those three implications and outcomes. So Adam immediately suffered the penalty of capital punishment or separation from God spiritually because God uh, immediately sent Adam out of the garden. So there was that spiritual separation. And had not Adam ever repented, nor if God... Never saved Adam, then he would have known eternal separation. Could be that Adam was saved and forgiven of his sin eventually in, his, in heaven. But there was also that physical separation that God promised would happen, and indeed it did. So God didn't forget the promise that he gave. So look at Genesis chapter 3. God is now uh, talking to Adam, and he's telling him the consequences for his sin because you disobeyed me. Here are the consequences. Cursed is the earth because of you, and here's uh, how it is cursed. Uh, Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Get this, till you return to the ground. You know what that means? Till you die. There it is. The death penalty being implemented by God. Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The penalty had been given. He was just on uh, skid row or whatever you call it, uh, waiting for the death penalty to be enacted many years later. And it did because you go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is one of those uh you know yawn ah boring genealogies we typically look at and just kind of skip when we're doing our Bible reading. This one is actually very important. In chapter five in Genesis is actually the chapter of death. Because there's a key phrase that keeps occurring all throughout chapter five of Genesis. It starts with the genealogy of Adam, and then it goes all the way through of all of his descendants down to Shem, Ham and Japheth, who are the sons of Noah. It's a genealogy from Adam to Noah. But one of the main things that God highlights in Genesis chapter five is the fulfillment of the death penalty that God promised in Genesis 2.17. And the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. He died by spiritual separation. And here, uh, God reminds us through the pen of Moses that Adam suffered the death penalty physically for his sin. Because in Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Seth was a real man. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Verse 5, so all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years. Old dude. Here's the key phrase at the end of verse 5. And he died. There it is. That is the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 2.17 at the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's the death penalty. You can count eight times in this chapter that phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. God is reminding us of the consequences of sin, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death in fulfillment of Genesis 2.17. So uh, God instituted the ca- uh, capital punishment, the death penalty in the very beginning. And He also defines what capital punishment is is. We're going to see more about that. But just a couple of sub-points under this idea that God was the one that instituted and defined capital punishment. Uh, you know, some people will say, well, God, God, I thought God was all about love. Love, love, love. Isn't having the capital punishment killing someone contrary to a God of love? That can't be. So that's one of the main arguments that many professing Christians will say why capital punishment is wrong. Because God is a God of love, Jesus is a a Savior of love, and therefore, uh, capital punishment, killing someone, is totally inconsistent with the Christian message of love or the Christian view of God. Well, that's a wrong view. That's an inferior view of God. God is love, but God is more than love. Because Hebrews tells us that God is a consuming fire. So not only is God love, He's also a consuming fire, which means He's a judge. God is holy, 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 says Isaiah 6. God isn't just love. God is love. God is holy. God is a consuming fire. God is holy, holy, holy. God is many things. He has many attributes. And you have to have a balanced view of God. So this idea of capital punishment and the death sentence flows out of the very nature of God. You've got to understand that. If you have an inferior, negligent, unbiblical view of God, then you're not going to get this issue right. As a matter of fact, you're not going to get very many issues correct in Christian living if you have a stilted view of God. So this idea of a death penalty flows out of the very character of God. He is a holy God. I want you to look at the uh, first, actually we'll stay in Moses' writings, if you look at Exodus 19 and just see how holy God is. If you read through the o- Old Testament, you'll see many instances of the holiness of God. When Isaiah said in Isaiah 6 that the Lord is holy, 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 That is the only time in the entire Bible where God is described with an attribute three times in a row. There are times where it says God is love, but only there in that instance is God described three times emphatically. He is a God of holiness. What is holiness? Holiness means purity. It means sinlessness. It means He must punish sin. He cannot tolerate evil in His presence because He is a holy, righteous God. And as the holy God, he must punish sin. He is the judge. So, out of this doctrine of God is holy, flows the idea of justice. Because God is holy, God is a wrathful God. God is an angry God. God is a jealous God. These are all statements right out of Scripture. That is a comprehensive, balanced view of God. He is holy, also implies perfect. He is perfect in His hatred. He is perfect in His justice. He is perfect in His wrath. He is perfect in His love. So we've got to have a fully-orbed biblical view of God. And so look at Exodus 19, and this is just before Moses goes up to that holy mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God Himself. And God wants to prepare the people to meet at the bottom, at the foot of that holy mountain. And here's how He prepares the people. In Exodus 19, starting at verse 12, God tells Moses... In verse 10, actually, the Lord, Yahweh, that's His personal name, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, you need to prepare these two million people for what I'm about to do. I'm going to meet them at the foot of the mountain. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Set them apart. Remind them that I'm a holy God. That's what he's saying. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments because they're going to come before a holy God and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set boundaries for the people all around saying, beware, here's the warning, beware that you do not go up on the mountain of God or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Wow. Why is that? That's the death penalty because of a holy God. So that's just an example of the holiness of God's character out of which flows the, the justice, the legitimacy of capital punishment in warranted circumstances. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Why? Because God is a holy God. He must punish sin. Another passage I want you to look at is amazing. This is profound. The youth Sunday school class has been going through Samuel. And 1 Samuel 6. Look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 6 beautiful prayer or sorry first Samuel chapter 2 one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament one of the just a it's an inspired prayer it is a perfect prayer it is a divine revelation of a prayer that God gave to this godly woman named Hannah she feared God she knew scripture she knew the revelation of God she knew the character of God she also had the privilege of having direct revelation from God in an amazing way that we don't today She poured out her heart before God and her prayer became divine inspiration for us. It is true. And here's what Hannah said about the character of God starting at chapter 2, verse 1 in First Samuel. Hannah pours her heart out and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord. She loves God. She loves Yahweh. She knows Him personally. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in Thy salvation, God. There is no one holy like the Lord. See, the holiness of God is paramount in Hannah's mind. Holiness of God as she goes to prayer, which is exactly what Jesus said of how we should pray. When you pray, pray this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy are you, God. That needs to be in the forefront of our mind. He is holy, holy, holy. And that's how Hannah prayed. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth for the the Lord or Yahweh is a God of knowledge. With him, actions are weighed. He is the judge. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. God is a fair, just judge. Verse 6, here it is. The Lord kills and makes alive. Wow. Because this flows out of his very nature. That is a very controversial statement right there. The Lord kills. Man, you say that to the average person on the street, you're going to shock their sensibilities. They will not know how to handle that. And so typically, people who are highly opposed to the idea of the death penalty and the death penalty in the Bible, they have a wrong view of God. And you can't expect an unbeliever who doesn't know God, who doesn't see this as God's holy and errant authoritative Word, you can't expect them to not be insulted by what Scripture says about the very character of God, because they just want a loving God. Well, He is a loving God, but He's more than that. He's also a holy God. And so Hannah understands that, and she makes this amazing, divinely inspired statement. The Lord kills and makes alive. God brings down to the grave, and He also raises up. The Lord makes the poor. The Lord makes the rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He is absolutely, totally sovereign in everything over all of creation. But the unbelieving world and people who don't have a proper view of God are not going to accept this. This is going to be foolishness in their eyes and in their ears. Here's an example. This is a best-selling book that's been a best-selling book for a couple of years now called The God Delusion. The God Delusion. You'll find this in just about every bookstore. It's a best-seller. It's selling like hotcakes. Uh, Richard Dawkins is the guy's name. He's just pumping out book after book after book. He is just uh, an unbridled atheist, hardcore. And he uh, just writes with reckless abandon. Insulting Christians in the Bible like none before him, really. It's amazing. It's actually kind of scary. He's emboldening hostility against Christianity. Here in America right now. The God delusion. He doesn't hold back either. Listen to this. In the beginning of his book, he's proud of this statement because in an interview, somebody interviewed him at the very beginning of the interview, he grabbed his book and he says, listen to this, and he quotes himself out of this book. And here's what he said. The God of the Old Testament, okay, that's your God and my God. That is my Savior He's talking about. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Does that offend you? It should. That is blasphemy. Yet, it's the bestseller, New York Times, in America. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Why? He is jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, celestial, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow, that's a mouthful. I think he's trying to grind an axe. He didn't like God. Unbelievable. Those of us schooled from infancy in His ways can become desensitized to their horror. So anyway, so much for that book. But people with that mindset can't possibly understand the holy character of God. But the character of God is what brings about and issues this idea of capital punishment. Um, So capital punishment flows out of the very character of God that He's holy. Another uh, reason there's capital punishment, God did it for our good, and that is to protect humanity, really, really. To protect humanity. That's one of the main arguments that some people will use against the death penalty. And they'll say, uh, well, the death penalty, it it doesn't do any good. It doesn't uh, restrain evil. Well, yeah, it does. They use that argument all the time. There is no empirical evidence that the capital punishment or the death penalty restrains evil or stops evil. Well, yeah, there is. Think about Ted Bundy, who was a notorious murderer and rapist in the 70s and 80s who ended up killing raping over 30 different women. It was going on in Colorado where I lived when I was growing up. I was scared to death to even go out the door. This guy was out on the streets in Colorado where I lived. Over 10 years, murdered, killed. He was released from prison several times. He escaped from prison a couple of times. Released from prison after having murdered somebody. Now think if the first time he was caught, went to trial and it was found that he was guilty and he admitted that he murdered, which he did, And then he'd been given the death penalty after he had murdered three different women. Then the other 33 women would not have been murdered by him. So how can you possibly say that the capital punishment does not restrain evil? Well, it does. That's why God gave capital punishment to humanity is for our good, for our protection. And uh, Tim referred to this earlier when he read Genesis chapter 9. I want to read it again because it's so important. Uh, Dispensationalists would say historically that this is where God instituted the dispensation of government. Very well could be. Things changed after the, the flood. Things changed. There were some new things when Moah uh, came off of that ark. Things were new. So when Noah got off the ark, things were new. Some of the things that were new was um, the weather was different. Another thing that was new is uh, Noah had a new menu. God said, now you, you used to just eat plants and be a vegetarian. Now you can actually eat animals. So enjoy that bacon with your eggs. So there's a new menu, but another thing that was new that had been instituted by God, we believe, are the rudiments and basic guidelines of government, and that was uh, God talking to Noah, and he said, and he was trying to protect human life, uh, both animal life and human life. In verse 4 of Genesis 9, he said, only you shall not eat flesh with its life. You don't just grab a dog and start eating it. You have to kill it, or not a dog, sorry. That's a different country. Uh, <laughs> cow or take your pick. Kill that cow first, cook it, don't eat its blood, don't eat it alive. God's even trying to protect the dignity of animals there. But in verse 5, He's protecting humanity. He says, and surely I, God, the judge, require your life blood. From every beast, I will require it. And from every man or human, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, whoever commits murder, whoever puts somebody to death illegally. There it is. It's murder He's talking about. Whoever commits Murder, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. There it is. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is perfect justice. God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. God gave life to a human being. And if somebody murders and takes away and snuffs out that life, God the judge has the right and the prerogative to say that the person who murdered them illegitimately forfeited their right to live because that's what God has said. He is the creator. He is the judge. He knows this is his law. By the way, this institution of capital punishment was given to Noah hundreds and hundreds of years before God gave capital punishment to Moses and the law and the Jews. This is before the Mosaic Law. This is where He instituted government and the right to wield the sword, to protect society and keep order and protect humanity and preserve life. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why God? Because in the image of God He made man. Every human being is made in God's image. Every human being is sacred. Man, woman, child, adult, whatever your social class, it doesn't matter... Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. Every human being was made in the image of God. There is the sanctity of life, and God wants to protect that sanctity because every time a human being is murdered illegitimately, the very image of God is effaced and emaciated illegitimately. It is an offense to God. And their blood cries out from the grave, screaming to God for justice. We know that from Genesis 4. Screaming for justice. So God here instituted the death penalty. He never... Revoked it either. But He did it to protect humanity. So that's point number two. God instituted and defined capital punishment. Point number three is that God delegated authority to government to wield capital punishment. So who is supposed to carry out capital punishment when it was warranted or due? Well, it's clearly to government. That's consistent all throughout Scripture. Starting in Genesis 9, then with Moses and the theocracy under Israel, there were certain laws on the books that were guidelines of how capital punishment was to be carried out and the right authority had to carry it out. That is reiterated again in the New Testament, church time. It's reiterated again in the book of Revelation. This authority to carry out legal justice of capital punishment is a delegated authority to the government by God. God did not delegate this right or authority of capital punishment to the church. That is very important. God did not delegate this authority of capital punishment to the church. And you know what? Some Christians got that wrong over the last 2,000 years. Some churches have. Even some good godly men got it wrong. John Calvin being one of them. John Calvin being very influential in Geneva and their political system and even making rules and trying to get laws passed where people should be executed and killed for blasphemy, for not believing in the gospel. That is wrong. That was not his place. That is not the place of the church. That is the place of the government, whether it's a Christian government or not. That is the place of government delegated to the government by God Himself. So Christians, we've got to be very careful here. We can't usurp the authority that belongs to civil government. God delegated authority to the government, not to the church, not to Christians on an individual basis, not to any human being on an individual basis apart from the authority of government. That's vigilantism. That is disobedient. That is wrong. So capital punishment has to be instituted by the proper delegated authority. And we saw that in Genesis 9, God speaking to Noah, who was a patriarch and actually a political leader, laying down the boundaries. Look at Romans chapter 13 here regarding government. Did you know that every government that exists on planet Earth right now, whether it's a dictatorship, a communist regime, an Islamic Sharia-ruled government, semi-democracy America, every government on planet Earth right now is instituted by God. Did you know that? Did you know that Adolf Hitler was raised up and allowed to rule by God even though he was satanic? He was put in that position by God sovereignly, providentially. He was given authority and Hitler abused that authority. Any good gift can be abused by a sinful man and that's what happens. 1 Timothy 1.8 is very clear on that. God gives us good gifts and then the perversion of man distorts it out of control, without accountability. But look at Romans 13. That's the theme of Romans 13, so I wanted you to understand that. God delegated authority to government, um, so that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 13. He says, "Let every person." He's talking to the Christians at Rome. Let every person be, let every Christian, be in subjection or submission to the governing authorities. So, whatever city you live in, you got a mayor, you got a governor. Governor Schwarzenegger, he's an authority with delegated authority in the Constitution that he's supposed to be enforcing and following. Supposedly, we need to submit to those authorities uh, where they are biblical. We have a president, we have senators, these are all governing authorities. Let every person be in subject and submission to the governing authorities insofar as they are biblical, that's the caveat because it's stated elsewhere, where there is no authority, governing authority, except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, the one who resists authority, governmental authority, has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So Paul is saying the government has a right to punish you if you resist the government. They have the right, they've been given that authority by God. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. A policeman doesn't just randomly pull you over and and give you a lollipop and say, hey, you were driving the speed limit, good job. That's not their job. They aren't supposed to reward good behavior. They are to do one thing. Punish evildoers. That's the main role of government. Punish. It's preventative. To prevent evil, protect people, punish evildoers. That is the role of government. That's what he's talking about. Uh, verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you uh, want to hear no fear of authority? Do, you, do then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, or the policeman in this case, is a minister of God. The policeman is a minister of God. We should have respect for police officers. The policeman is a minister of God. Why? For your good. To serve and to protect. That's their job. But if you do what is evil, go over the speed limit, steal, whatever, then be afraid. You should have fear. Your guilt should come in. The law is coming after you. For it does not. It does not. The government does not. The policeman does not bear the sword. You know what the sword was? That was for chopping heads off with. Execution. Capital punishment. So Paul is legitimizing capital punishment here. Government doesn't wield the sword for capital punishment in vain or for nothing, for the government and the police are ministers of God. They are avengers. Retribution. There it is. An avenger who brings wrath, punishment, retribution on the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake as a Christian. Basically, all all that to say Paul is... Recognizing capital punishment is legitimate because it's a delegated authority given by God. Uh, I do want, here is that caveat and that balance. In First Timothy chapter 1, Paul talks about the legitimate purpose of any law. All law that's legitimate really flows from God, His character, His nature, His word. Any, any United States laws that are consistent with Scripture are good laws. Any United States laws that go against Scripture are bad, evil laws. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy. He's talking about the purpose of the law, which flows from God, the law giver. Uh, and he says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, but we know as Christians that the law is good. The law from God. He's talking about the Old Testament. The law from God is good. reflects His character. That is if one uses it lawfully. That is such an important phrase because law can be abused, can it? Authority can be abused. If it is used lawfully, some people get into power and they abuse their role of authority, don't they? That is not good. It's shameful. They're accountable to God for it. So, but the law is good. Verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for righteous men. There it is. The law is not made for righteous, obedient people. Righteous, obedient, conscientious people don't need a bunch of laws. Lawbreakers need laws. The law is not made for righteous people, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. That's who needs laws. The ungodly and sinners need laws. The unholy and profane need laws. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, they need laws. Laws are for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching in the Bible or according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Main point, Paul affirmed the law and even capital punishment that was given to restrain evil and to be preventative. We've gotten so far from that basic concept of what government and law is for. It is to restrain evil, to protect society, to protect order for peaceful living. That's what the law is for. Let's go on to point number four after point number three. Point number three is God delegated authority to government to wield capital punishment. And then point number four is the Old Testament endorsed capital punishment. The Old Testament endorsed capital punishment. I counted, I came up with 28 explicit laws that warranted the death penalty. 28. Here in America, I think the death penalty is to be given for murder in some cases, very rarely. Did you know that here in America, historically, we had the death penalty for other offenses and sins? They've all been banished. And at one point, like I said, during the 70s, there was no more death penalty. But in the Old Testament, God gave the following as warranted for the death penalty. These following sins or crimes. I'll go fast. Murder. Striking a parent. Cursing a parent. Being a continually rebellious rebellious child against parents. Kidnapping. Sorcery or witchcraft. Necromancy or talking to the dead, praying to the dead. Being an enemy of the state. Sabbath or, Sabbath breaking or working on the Sabbath. Idolatry, harlotry or prostitution, adultery, rape, condoning rape, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, blasphemy, false prophecy. Get a load of that one. False prophecy. False prophecy. False teaching. False teaching. False prophecy. False religions. Israel and the church are supposed to speak out against false religions. We're not allowed to do that today, are we? It's politically incorrect. It's uncouth. It hurts people's feelings. I'm not supposed to say that Islam is a false and dangerous religion. That was not God's view. False prophecy warranted the death penalty. Uh, a repeat ox killer. What in the world is that? Well, Exodus 21, 29. If, you're, if you had owned an ox and he got out of the yard, got out of his pen or whatever it is, uh, and he went and killed your neighbor by accident and gored him to death and that was the first time it happened then the ox was to be put to death but the owner of the ox was not. But if it happened a second time after a warning and the ox got out and ended up killing somebody then the ox was to be put to death and the owner of the ox. So something similar actually happens in our society. When I moved here ten years ago there was this Rottweiler that apparently killed some lady in the apartment complex and mauled her to death and there was a big old trial about that and the owners are responsible. They're liable from God's point of view. Those dogs immediately should have been executed. And if there was a history of that, then according to the Old Testament, they would have been stoned to death. Capital punishment. False prophecy. Repeat. Ox killer. Babies offered to Molech. If a parent did that, they were to be executed. Uh, pagan Canaanites were to be executed. Resisting authority that God ordained was warranted the death penalty. Uh, false Testimony in a capital crime case warranted the death penalty. Sabotaging justice in a capital offense trial warranted the death penalty. Causing a miscarriage, even accidentally, warranted the death penalty. Drunkenness by a priest warranted the death penalty. Mishandling holy furnishings around the ark warranted the death penalty, Numbers 4.15. Wow, that's 28 Offenses. And then not, that doesn't even count all the spontaneous offenses that happen where God executed somebody with capital punishment in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, whether it was, uh, as I remember, Uzzah, of that well-intentioned guy who was commissioned by David to kind of guard and watch the ark as they were carrying it 10 miles through town back to Jerusalem and they put it on a cart, which they weren't supposed to do. They're supposed to be carrying it on poles, according to the book of Numbers. And Numbers 4.15 said, carry it on those two poles and you better carry it that way. And if you touch it, you're, you're history, buddy. And David forgot to tell the guys that rule, that kind of important rule. So they're moving the card of the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem for the first time, and there's Uzzah on one end and his partner over there, and they're going along, and then it hit a bump and it started to tip over, and Uzzah, well-intentioned guy, went and he grabbed it to balance it and keep it up, and boom, he was executed on the spot by God because he violated Numbers 4:15. He touched the holy ark in an illegitimate way. David got angry at God. You can read that story in Samuel, Second Samuel, but the point is, God is a holy God and has very specific requirements. So that was just one spontaneous example of the death penalty. And then uh, Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the elders about what they gave to God in Acts chapter 5. were executed by God on the spot in the middle of the altar call. Grabbed by the ankles and the deacons pulled them out of the church. Kind of scary, huh? So spontaneous offenses. So that's the Old Testament that endorsed capital punishment. Uh, let's go on to point number 5 and that is the apostles in the New Testament also affirmed capital punishment. We saw that with Paul in Romans 13. We won't go back there, but I do want to read this from First Peter uh, chapter Two. Look at First Peter Chapter Two, where Peter, head apostle, taught by Jesus, affirmed in a very similar statement to what we saw in Paul in Romans 13. He affirmed the death penalty, even his in his day, that it was legitimate and warranted for certain offenses. And so that's why Peter warns Christians in First Peter Chapter Two, Verse 13. He said, "Submit yourselves, Christian, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, to government authorities, whether it's a king or anyone that's an authority." Like a governor, verse 14, because kings and governors and rulers in the government were sent by God, sent by God for punishment of evildoers. Punishment, that's what they do. That is the purpose of justice. It is punishment. Some would argue and say, no, we're supposed to rehabilitate, not punish, rehabilitate with education and money and accept. No, it's punishment for sins and crimes and evil. That's what it says. Ruling authorities were sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor, submit to government. But he acknowledges that government has has the right to inflict retribution and punishment for evil and sin when it is warranted. So, That's the Apostle Peter. Uh, One, I want to read about Acts 25. Here's the Apostle Paul once again reiterating that capital punishment was legitimate. Even as a Christian, he said this. Even as an author of the New Testament, he said this. Even in believing in a God of love, he said this. Uh, Acts chapter 25, the Apostle Paul has been arrested on false charges. He hasn't broken the law. He hasn't broken Jewish law. He hasn't broken Roman law. Nevertheless, he was arrested, put in shackles, whipped, beaten, all that stuff, and then left uh, in prison, he went to trial. Then they left him in prison for two entire years to just sit there and rot. And then he gets another opportunity to have a trial before a, guy, a new guy named Festus, some pagan. And that's Acts chapter 25. So after sitting there for two years... Paul finally gets to give his defense in Acts 25, verse 8, before Festus, who is the legal authority. And Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense. I haven't committed a crime. I haven't committed a crime either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I haven't violated Jewish law or Roman law. I am innocent. Why am I in jail? But Festus, wishing, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul said to Festus, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal right now. I need to go up there. We're ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know, Festus. Festus was a crooked politician. Warped. He wasn't interested in justice. Paul knew this. Look at verse 11. Here it is. Acts 25, verse 11. Here's what Paul said. He is on trial. He is before a court the proper delegated authorities, and Paul says this, if then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. There it is. Paul acknowledged the legitimacy of the death penalty when it was warranted, both Peter and Paul, and it's consistent all throughout the New Testament. So the apostles affirmed legitimacy of capital punishment. And then finally, number six, most important point, really. Well, what would Jesus say? Or what would Jesus do? Really, we we know what Jesus said. It's not what would Jesus say. It's what did Jesus say and what does the Bible say Jesus is going to do. And we would say that Jesus endorsed capital punishment. Jesus endorsed capital punishment. Clearly, many times. Uh, Just a couple of sub-points. He affirmed the Mosaic Law that had 28 crimes at least that warranted the death penalty. He didn't abrogate or overturn the Mosaic Law. He honored, submitted to, taught on, fulfilled... The mosaic law he said that himself john chapter i mean uh, matthew chapter 5 17 and 18 listen to what jesus said about his view of the mosaic law and all those capital punishment commands he said do not think that i came to abolish the law of moses or the prophets i did not come to abolish the entire old testament turn it on its ear so that it's not effectual anymore I didn't come to abolish it. As a matter of fact, I came to fulfill the Old Testament law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, the entire Old Testament, until everything is accomplished and fulfilled. So Jesus endorsed capital punishment by endorsing the entire Mosaic law as legitimate. Well, what about the lady caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and where she didn't get stoned and Jesus said, go and sin no more. See, Jesus didn't execute her with the death penalty. Well, Jesus didn't let her go because he didn't believe in the capital punishment. Jesus believed in capital punishment. The reason Jesus let her go was there were no witnesses to condemn her, which was required by Deuteronomy 17 and also in Exodus. You couldn't put somebody to death on the testimony of one person or zero people. It had to be a minimum of two people that were legitimate witnesses. And Jesus said, well, here is, who is here as a witness to condemn you in accordance with the Old Testament? And she said, no one. And she said, well, then your case dismissed. He was speaking as a judge. He didn't dismiss capital punishment. They weren't following through on the proper way to delegate that authority. Uh, So Jesus endorsed capital punishment. He acknowledged delegated authority, by the way, to for anybody that was going to execute or use capital punishment because when he was talking to Pilate, Pilate asked him a question and Jesus, it says Jesus said nothing in John 19. And then Pilate says, you don't answer me? Don't you understand who I am? I'm a big shot. I've delegated authority. I have the power to release you. I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus said, he didn't say, no, you don't. He said, the authority that you have to crucify me has been given to you, basically, from my Father. So Jesus acknowledged Pilate's delegated authority to execute Jesus. Even though it was illegitimate because Jesus wasn't guilty. So Jesus acknowledged delegated authority to... Fulfill capital punishment. Here's another example. When Jesus was just about to leave and be arrested, actually they're in the garden and he's with his 11 apostles and uh, Peter happened to sneak a sword under his robe in the garden in case he needed to use it, like right now. And so here's Judas leading this entourage of maybe 200 soldiers and people and Judas coming to arrest Jesus. And it says they came up and Jesus says, Who do you seek? And they said, uh, Jesus. And they, Judas kissed him. And it, went, and it says they seized him. They grabbed Jesus. And Peter is right there. And he panics. And here's what he, did. he does in Matthew 26. When they seized Jesus, verse 51 says, And behold, whoa, get this is what it means. One of those who was with Jesus, that's Peter we know from the other Gospels, reached and drew out his sword. He wielded that sword, trying to chop the guy's head off. The guy's name was Malchus, who was standing there closest. He went to probably chop his head off. Malchus was a quick guy. He ducked. So Peter whoosh, lopped off his ear. And listen to what Jesus said to that when he saw this. Peter tried to illegitimately take the law into his own hands, and he cut off Malchus's ear. And then Jesus said to Peter, "Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword." Peter, if you commit murder, if you kill illegitimately, the government, these soldiers right here, have the right to take your life on the spot. Jesus was referring or endorsing the death penalty or capital punishment right there, not resisting it. And most importantly, uh, Jesus endorsed the capital punishment because he submitted himself to capital punishment. He was not a helpless victim when he died on the cross. When Jesus got executed on the cross, that was the highest form of capital punishment. And Jesus was executed. The crime he supposedly committed was blasphemy, which, according to the Mosaic law, warranted the death penalty. And in John chapter 10, the Jews were angry at Jesus and they picked up stones to stone him and they were about to start throwing bowling balls at him and put him to the death. To death. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Well, wait a minute, why? why are you about to, for what sin did I commit that you were about to stone me to death? And he knew because they said it. You want to execute me for the sin of blasphemy because I call God my Father and I say that I am the Son of God? So Jesus was endorsing the Old Testament law he says you want to stone me then give me the legal reason you want to stone me if you have a legal legitimate reason go ahead flail away once again jesus endorsing capital punishment is given in the old testament but now finally we're going to this is one of the most important look at isaiah 53 the highest form of capital punishment was when jesus was executed on the cross and he submitted to this willingly this was why he was born He came for this purpose. This was planned in eternity past. This is what the entire Old Testament history for 4,000 years was leading up to. The capital punishment, the execution, the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of all sinners who deserved the death penalty. Dying is their substitute. That's why I believe the church doesn't put people to death today for all these Old Testament crimes. It's not that we've set aside the Old Testament because the Old Testament requires death. The death sentence for perjurers and murderers and rebels and sexually immoral and adulterers, then why are we not killing them today? Because somebody already died and suffered the death penalty and capital punishment in their behalf. That was Jesus on the cross. He fulfilled the law. He died for every sinner that trusts in Him and confesses Him as Savior and Lord and believes that He died in their place. And here's how it's described. Here is God the Judge. God the Father is Judge looking down from heaven. And He's going to punish Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. It is retribution. It is a holy wrath. It is unmistakable. It is capital punishment. And Jesus willingly embraced this. This is 700 years before Jesus died. This prophecy was made about God the Father, the Judge, the King, the Holy God, punishing sin in Christ Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs Jesus He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, beaten as a prisoner. Smitten of God and afflicted. There it is. Smitten of God. But He was pierced through. He was killed. He was given capital punishment. He was pierced through. Crucified. Why? For our transgressions. I am the adulterer. I am the one that deserves death. Jesus died for me. Hallelujah, that's the Gospel. That is the good news. Well, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I don't deserve death. Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us deserves the death penalty from God's point of view. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus willingly absorbed the wrath of God and died for every sinner and every sin on the cross if they would just turn to Him as the substitute. And the law of Moses was fulfilled. Out of those 28 offenses, I've committed almost 28 of those that warranted the death penalty. I'm not going to tell you which ones. But I believe that Jesus got executed for every one of them on my behalf, and I'm totally forgiven of all of my sin. He was smitten of God the Father, afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the retribution... For our well-being fell upon Jesus as our substitute. By His scourging, by His whipping, by His death, we are healed. We are forgiven. All of us, every single one of us, is like sheep has gone astray as a sinner. Each of us has turned to our own selfish ways. But the Lord, Yahweh, Savior, has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on Jesus. That is amazing. That is amazing. Jesus endorsed capital punishment and he took it upon himself for every sinner that would ever come to him and cry out to him as savior and lord and here's the last point about jesus and his view of capital punishment and now that jesus has absorbed the death penalty he still believes in the death penalty he still believes it's warranted and it's warranted for those who reject his work on the cross who reject his substitution and he's still going to flesh out and mete out the death penalty on those who reject the Gospel. This is a reality. Every time somebody dies apart from Christ, they suffer the death penalty. They suffer capital punishment for eternity. Really. Hell is the highest form of capital punishment. So we'll close with this. Look at Second uh, Thessalonians. Chapter 1, and this speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. This is a real event. It's going to happen. It's in the future. We don't know, but it's sure to come. All of history is leading up to this. For the Christians, we rejoice. This is our great hope. For those who reject Christ, this is their demise. This is their doom. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and Paul writes this to encourage believers. These believers were being persecuted by a wicked, corrupt culture. Second Thessalonians chapter one, starting at verse six, he says this: For after all, I rejoice that you believe in Jesus Christ. Verse three: Thankful for you, your faith in the gospel, your suffering for being a Christian. End of verse five. But be encouraged, Christian. Verse six: For all, for after all, oh, and God's righteous judgment is coming. Verse five: For after all, it is only just for God to repay. Here it is: Repay. That's retribution, not reeducate, not rehabilitate sinners. We can't rehabilitate sinners with our prison system. Only God can rehabilitate a sinner, and that is because it has to be rehabilitated at the heart, right? We need a heart change. That's the only rehabilitation that's going to change a person. And God is in the business of rehabilitating the heart, changing the heart. You must be born again. can't be done on a superficial level. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you as Christians and to give you relief. To you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus, here it is, shall be revealed from heaven, that's in the future, with His mighty angels in flaming fire. This is judgment. What is He going to do? Verse 8, dealing out retribution. There it is. Retribution, not rehabilitation. Punishment. Dealing out retribution. This is Jesus. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these unbelievers who willfully, consciously, knowingly reject the gospel of Christ... These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. There it is, the death penalty. The penalty of eternal destruction. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints, in believers on Judgment Day and to be marveled at among all who hear and who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always, Christians, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you and Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ in all God's people. People said, Amen. And that's what we look for is the coming of the glorious, just, holy, loving, merciful Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for, for Your Word and the clarity of Your Word. Thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit. For these great spiritual truths would mean nothing to us apart from the Teacher, the Holy Spirit who illuminates our understanding. God, thank You for showing us in Scripture who You really are, Your your character. You are a God of love and You're a God of holiness. And all those wonderful, blessed attributes about You. And thank You for allowing us to know You for who You truly are in all of Your fullness because of the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. His willing death on the cross. His powerful resurrection. His ascension. His role as High Priest right now on our behalf as lowly sinners as we can come to You for ongoing forgiveness of sin. Thank You so much for that, Father. Thank You for Your goodness and care for us. Also, thank You for the great hope we have in the future. We have hope to press on one more day. That's the reality of Your coming. Well, You'll make all injustices right. You're going to be glorified in Your saints. What a blessed promise. What a blessed privilege. We thank You so much for that great reality. We give You glory. We give You praise. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen.